Romans 13 is where we find ourselves this morning. If you need a Bible, wave into the darkness. <laughs> Romans 13. There are some verses in Scripture, if you're given the address, you know what's waiting there. John 3.16, you know God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. Romans 8.28, you're ready. Oh, that's all things work together for good, for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. There are some, some passages that we know, chapter and verse. There's others we might not be able to recite everything that's there, but we know generally the chapter. Genesis 1, well, that's in the beginning God created heaven and earth. If we don't know anything else, we know that Genesis 1 is creation. We know Isaiah 53 is the cross. By his stripes we're healed. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There are, are chapters, you say the name, the number. Oh yeah, I know what that is. Until very recently... And by recently, I mean like the last three years. Romans 13 wasn't on that list for any of us. Not in the United States. Romans 13, it's always been, you know, an interesting chapter because all of Scripture is interesting. But no one, I can't say no one, I don't know of anyone who looked at Romans 13 prior to 2020 and said, oh, that is a super relevant text. But then COVID happened. And with COVID was shut down and lockdown and masks and distancing and vaccines and boosters and quarantines. And all of a sudden, Romans 13 got really relevant really fast. So against that backdrop, let's read a few verses. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Romans 13, verse 1. For there's no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same authority. For he, that authority, is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he, that authority, that does not bear the sword in vain, he's God's minister, an avenger, to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they're God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs, to whom customs are due, to fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor. For a while in 2020, even into 2021, you couldn't go anywhere. Well, okay, that's true. For a while you couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> but for a while you couldn't go anywhere without somebody bringing up this text, right? You'd talk to anyone in the church, you'd read anything online, anything that had to do with anything would reference Romans 13. For all different reasons. For some people, it was, it was the proof text urging the church to acquiesce to all manner of government rules and restrictions. Submit, because Paul tells us to. Some would bring Romans 13 up to, to, to say, this doesn't apply and this is why. This isn't that and, and because of this. 
And in spite of Romans 13, this is why it's still the church's duty to stand up and to resist the curtailment of liberty and, and so forth that the government was imposing during COVID. Fun times. And, and because all of that is still so fresh in our mind, it's still raw, right? That makes it a challenge to tackle this passage with any degree of objectivity, which I think makes it all the more important that we try. Because I don't think it's the last time we're going to see a pandemic, a war, a financial meltdown, some perceived threat to our health, safety, and welfare challenge how we worship. I don't think it's the last time that we're going to be asked or expected to sacrifice religious liberty in the name of the greater good. So I think it's useful, I think it's vital in this moment of relative calm to try to understand what Paul is saying and to reflect on what he means and to ask, what do we do with his words? How do we apply this to our lives? Because like I said, I'm absolutely... as, as I'm not absolutely certain of anything, but as certain as I can be of anything in this world, 2020 is not going to be the last time in our lifetime that Romans 13 is going to be directly and immediately relevant. So it might be useful to know what we think about it before the next emergency shows up. Now, so background, just so you know where I'm coming from. I don't personally think that COVID was deliberately unleashed to crash the economy, to trigger a political crisis, or to depopulate the planet. I might be wrong, and if you think I'm wrong, you might be right. I, didn't, I think it was too clumsy to be intentional, but I might be wrong. And, 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 and if you're sure that I am, I hope we can still be friends. I, I, I hope this isn't something we break fellowship over. I don't think COVID escaping the lab was intentional. What I do think is that once it was out, a whole bunch of stuff happened really quick. I think some of it was well-intentioned. I think some of it was opportunistic, you know, the don't waste a good crisis kind of a thing. I think a lot of it was fear-based and reactive because no one knew what they were doing. There was no playbook for this. So you ended up with governments and businesses and agencies and schools and sports leagues all making it up as they went along, watching each other, taking cues from each other, and, and bidding up the fear. We need social distancing. Oh, yeah, well, I think we need social distancing and masks. Well, I'll see your masks, and I'll raise you no school. Okay, I'll call you no school, and I'll raise you working from home. All right, I'll see you working from home. I'll raise you vaccine. Oh, yeah, I'm all in. Boosters. I mean, that's what it was like, right? Everybody had to be more scared than the person next to them. And three years later, more and more studies are showing that a lot of those measures were based on bad science and sloppy logic. But, but none of that requires bad intentions. You're looking at me, you're saying, Patrick, you're an optimist. And you might be right. I think most of what was, was going on was driven by fear. I think people were more worried than wicked. I think that they were more fearful than evil. But even if you disagree, I think we'll agree on this. Intentional or not, next time probably will be. I think the powers that be studied what happened in 2020, the steps that were taken to curtail liberties, how people responded to those steps, and how the government responded to the people's response. I think people went to school on all of that. 
I think that those sitting on thrones and the power behind those thrones observed, studied, learned from what happened. And I think that even now they're watching and waiting and maybe creating an opportunity to apply that learning. Which brings us back to what do we do when that happens? More to the point, what does Romans 13 say we should do when that happens? Let's get into it. I, I, I threw out an outline before, and you probably didn't even notice that I was. But it, one size fits all outline for any Bible study. What does the word say? What does the word mean? And what do we do with it? That's observe, interpret, apply. That's what, so what, now what? Some Sundays we allow ourselves to be a little bit more fluid, a little bit more casual with that structure. This morning, how about let's not? This is going to be a challenging passage, especially when we get to application. So this morning, I want to be a little extra rigorous in our approach. And again, can, can we decide right now, even if we decide that we disagree walking out the door, let's walk out as friends. Romans 13, first seven verses. What's Paul saying? It's actually, this, this, this one isn't hard. Not compared to like Wednesday night when we're in Isaiah and we take 30 minutes just to figure out what Isaiah is trying to get across because he's all poetic and prophetic and cryptic. This isn't that. Paul's not being prophetic. He's not being poetic. And he's not doing the thing he does where he speaks all referentially with Old Testament allusions. Well, just as Moses was like this and just as Abraham was like that, he's not doing any of that. This is as clear as Paul gets. This is one of those times where he's saying in a very straightforward fashion, put yourself, place yourself, allow yourself to be under the authority of government. Okay, why would I do that, Paul? For, he says, still verse 1, Paul says for when he's about to give us an explanation, for there's no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Place yourself under the authority of government because God establishes government. Kings, emperors, presidents, governors, city councils, sheriffs, dog catchers, they're all in place because God puts them in place. That's not a new idea. It's all through the Old Testament. Daniel 4.17, just to pick one. The Most High, God, rules in the kingdom of men, gives it, gives kingdoms, gives government to whomever he will, and sets it, sets government authority over the lowest of men, over everybody. Which God does in a lot of different ways, right? Leaders come to power by force. Leaders come to power by popular election. Leaders come to power by choosing their parents carefully. You know, Charles is king because mom was king or queen. But, but, but whatever the path from a human perspective, however they get there from, from our point of view, from our vantage point, Paul is saying leaders are where they are by divine ordinance. And sometimes it's really hard to see why. God, what Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden. God, you put all of them in the Oval Office. Yeah. And he put Hitler over Germany. He put Stalin over Russia. He put Nero, emperor, when Paul was writing, over Rome. And we look at some of those people and ask, God, what are you doing? How do you allow that, let alone ordain it? We have to remember, A, God's ways are above our ways. And, and two, we know that some of God's purposes 
include blessing, but also chastening, discipline, and sometimes judging. Sometimes we get the leaders we deserve. Think about Nero. We don't know everything God had in mind. We can't. Who, who, who fully knows the, the mind of God? But we can see how the persecution of the church under Nero resulted in the spread of the gospel. People were forced to go places that they hadn't been, and they brought the gospel with them. So the gospel went places it hadn't gone before. What, why, did, why, did, why did God allow Hitler to rise to power and, and, and implement the Holocaust? We don't know. A professor of mine wrote a book, Why Did the Heavens Not Darken? I don't think anyone has a satisfactory answer to that. But... But if not for the Holocaust, I don't know how Israel regathers and, and is recognized as a nation again. I'm not saying that that explains it all. I'm not saying that it justifies it all. I'm just saying God always has more in play than we recognize. He's playing 3D chess while we're playing tic-tac-toe. Point being, point being, God establishes rulers. Therefore, Paul says, verse 2, therefore, submit to those rulers. Those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Not eternal judgment, obviously, judgment in this life. Maybe judgment at the hands of those very rulers. Why, Paul? I'm still confused. I know, he says, I'm not done yet. For, he's still explaining, for, verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Remember what Paul says at the very beginning of the letter. I don't have it on a slide, but all the way back in Romans 1, you remember Paul goes into this lengthy dissertation about human nature, sin nature. We're debased, unrighteous, immoral, wicked, covetous, malicious, envious, murdering, deceitful, evil-minded, whisperers, backbiters, haters, violent, proud boasters. Government, Paul is saying, is used by God to rein all of that in. Government is intended to protect all of us from the unbridled expression of our sin nature. Government is there to protect us from ourselves. Is that a perfect solution? It is not. We said last week it can't be because government is made up of people and people have that same sin nature. But apart from salvation, government is the best hedge against sin nature that we've got. The only solution to our sin nature is what? Jesus, love. God's love in the person of Jesus poured down on the cross. That's the solution to our sin nature. But short of that, verse 3, short of that, Paul tells us the only tool that we have to constrain evil is fear. Fear of getting caught, fear of getting punished, fear of government. Do you want to be unafraid? If you don't want to be afraid, do what's good. And you'll have praise from the government. For he, whoever's in authority, he or she is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. Be very afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. He's God's minister. God put him there to be an avenger, to execute wrath on God's behalf on the one practicing evil. Now Paul knows where we're going to go next. He knows how we think. He knows that you and I, Believers in Jesus Christ are going to say, okay, Paul, that's good for all of the sinners. That's good for the, the unwashed, reprobate masses. But I'm a Christian, Paul. I know God. I'm indwelt by the Spirit of God. I follow Jesus. So that, so that doesn't apply to me. Actually, it does. 
And, and Paul hastens to tell us that it does. He says, therefore you, verse 5, you believers up in Rome, you Christians reading this letter must be subject. Not only because of wrath, that's the reason that applies to everyone, but also custom tailored for you, Christian, be, because of conscience, for conscience sake. As believers, we've got an extra incentive to submit to government. There's wrath, and that's one size fits all for everybody, but conscience, the transformed mind that God has given us, the transformed mind Paul has been talking about, calls us to submit to government. We don't have less reason, we have more reason. And, and I mean, and that just makes sense from a practical perspective. If laws aren't for everyone, they're really not for anyone, are they? If you say, well, this, this law applies to these people, not those people, everyone says, well, I'm one of those people. Everyone decides that they're part of the exempt group. So, Paul wraps up in verse 6. Because of this, because of all of this, because of everything that he said, for these three reasons, God establishes government, uses government, calls us to respect government, pay your taxes. It's almost anticlimactic, right? That's what you're building up to? He's using that as an illustration of a broader point. He's saying support your government. Because they're God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. What thing? Doing the will of God. Governments do the will of God, or at least they're intended to, which means the work that they're doing, the ministry, Paul calls it, the ministry they're performing has to be funded. So funded, he says. It's a weird transition, I'll grant you. But, but see it as a subset of where he goes next. He's, he's using a specific instance to make a bigger point. And the bigger point, verse 7, is to render all, all in government, all authorities, their due. Taxes for the tax collectors, customs to, to the border officials, fear or respect to law enforcement, honor to whom honor. Honor, not fawning adoration, not, not obsequious bowing and scraping, never worship, just acknowledgement. They're God's ministers. They're put in places that they are by God to do the will of God. Now just reading that, just reading that's got some of your hackles up. I get it. I don't like taxes either, especially the dumb ones, and most of them are dumb ones. But I'm just reading God's word. This isn't Paul's opinion. This is the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit has to say. Now, it might help if this isn't sitting well. It might help if we spend some time clarifying. Okay, that's what Paul is saying. But what does he mean because these verses say what they say, but they aren't the only verses we have. We have to read them in the context of the entirety of Scripture. We have to compare Scripture with Scripture. And if we do that, we go back to verse 1 again and we read again, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, and we ask ourselves, is that always true? Always and perfectly and without qualification or exception, true? Answer must be no or we wouldn't be talking about it. And the answer is no. Paul is not saying, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, always in all things, without limit. Okay, what's the limit? If I ask you that question, all right, Paul is making a, a strong assertion. We know that, that there's a limit. What's the limit? Most of you are going to say, government can't ask me to sin. I'll respect government up to the point where they say, to follow us you have to sin. At that point I get off the bus. 
if the, if, if the government says, do this and you'll be arrested, and doing this is what God has commanded me to do, I'm going to do it and take me to jail. We, you're nodding your heads. You're saying, yeah, that's right. That's what I've been taught. Why, why do we believe that? Because here's the thing. Not everybody believes that. It, it seems somewhat intuitive to us, but history tells us that in Poland... In Poland, during World War II, there were Christians who refused to hide Jews in their homes. Knowing what was going on, they said, no, I'm sorry, we have to obey the government. Romans 13.2 says so. And we say, that's wrong. That's, that, that could not be more wrong. That's horrific. That's sin. And, and intuitively, yeah. How do we get there biblically? How do we defend the idea that we... Submit to government up to a point, but no further. Well, you, you, can, you can find it lurking in what Paul just said. It's not there explicitly, but it's there implicitly. He tips his hand a little bit in verse 4 when he talks about government being God's minister. Better translation, God's servant to us for good. Okay, servants have assignments. Servants have boundaries. There are things that servants are and are not allowed to do. And servants are expected to obey. Not long ago, Wednesday night, folks, we were in Isaiah and we read about God's judgment against Assyria. Why? They exceeded their mandate. They crossed the line. They did more. They did differently than what God had asked. God said, I'm going to use you to chasten Judah. They rolled up their sleeves and almost destroyed Judah. And God says, no, 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 you don't get to do that. So by extension, we can see lurking in there by Paul's use of the word servant and, and the stated mission of the servant to do good. Okay, that, that suggests a boundary. And there's another suggestion when we get to verse 7. Render, therefore, to all their due. That gives us Matthew twenty two twenty one 21 vibes, right? When Jesus says, render unto Caesar what Caesar, render unto God what is God's. I think Paul is using this language on purpose when he says render taxes, render customs, render fear, render honor. Because he's saying render these specific things. He's not saying render all things always. There are categories. He doesn't say render worship. He doesn't say render unqualified obedience. He says render unto government the stuff that's proper, but understand there are some things that we render to God and God alone. This is like, this will work for some of you, it's a little like the enumerated powers clause of the Constitution that says the federal government has the power to do W, X, Y, and Z and nothing else. The federal government can do W, X, Y, and Z. Anything not specifically listed is, is a power that belongs to the states. Paul is, is, is running a similar thing. He's saying, render unto government what government is due. These things, these specific things. But the things that government isn't owed are owed to God and God alone. Here's the thing. We think that that's what Paul is saying. But I'm making much out of not much. I'm, I'm, I'm pointing at some hints and some inferences, and, I, and I'm saying, this is where I think Paul is, is going, but, but you can't make an airtight case. You just can't. You can draw some inferences, but to really pin this down, we got to bounce out of Romans and we got to bounce over to Acts 5. And you can either turn there or read it on the screen. End of Acts 5, we catch up with Peter and John and some of the other guys. They're standing in the temple preaching the gospel. Just one problem with that. 
chief priests and the Pharisees said, you can't stand in the temple and preach the gospel. They're standing there preaching even after the authorities had ordered them not to. And verse 28, they roll up and say to Peter and John, didn't we order you not to? But Peter and the other apostles answered, Acts 5.29, and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And then they preached the gospel right to them, and I love that part. <laughs> you can't preach the gospel. It, yeah, we kind of got to. And by the way, here's the gospel. <laughs> Their point was God commanded them to preach the gospel. To disobey would be sin. So they said to the authorities, look, we want to submit to you, but in this case, disobedience would be sin. We can't do that. If it's God's law versus man's law, God's law wins 11 out of 10 times. Which, which, was, which was not a new principle. When government edict conflicts with God's word, God's word always wins from the beginning. Exodus 1, when the Jewish midwives were ordered to kill the, the baby Jewish boys as soon as they were born to control the, the burgeoning Jewish population, they refused because they feared God more than man. Hebrews 11, same idea. Moses' parents were ordered to kill him for the same reason, and they refused. They weren't afraid of the king's command, we read in Hebrews, but they were very afraid of displeasing God. Book of Daniel, this is the classic example, and it's a two for the price of one. Daniel 3, we get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, says, hey, you're in Babylon. you got to do like the Babylonians. you got to worship our gods. They said, no, we, sorry, we can't. They refused. They end up in the fiery furnace. They survive. Daniel 6, Daniel, also in Babylon, is ordered not to pray to the God of Israel. So his friends are ordered, hey, you have to do the thing you're commanded to not do. They said, we can't. Daniel is commanded, you, you can't do the thing you're commanded to do, which is pray. He refuses, he ends up in the lion's den. Spoiler alert, he lives too. Now, not all of those stories have a happy ending from, from an earthly perspective, Stories like Justin Martyr in 165 A.D. ends up before the prefect of Rome. You, you can tell by his name how the story's going to end, right? Justin Martyr. <laughs> he and a bunch of others are brought before the authorities in Rome. You've got to sacrifice to Roman gods. You've got to bow down to Apollo and Jupiter and, and, and Athena and all of them. And they said, well, do what you will. We're Christians and we don't sacrifice to idols. And so they were executed as have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands who refuse to renounce Christianity, bow down to idols, or sin before God in the name of some government. And we like those stories, don't we? We like the, story, we, we like the ones where the good guys get away the best. But even when they don't, we like the stories where the moral is rebellion is justified because we want to be rebels. We want to have a biblical reason to tell the government where to get off. It's like having that reverse Uno card in our pocket. Booyah! <laughs> but be careful. Be careful because nothing Paul is saying, implicitly or explicitly, nothing we can learn from Daniel and his buddies, nothing that we can see in the book of Acts tells us that when we disagree with God, we automatically win. Strike that. I said that wrong. When we disagree with government we automatically win. We want to believe that. And the fact that some Christians believe that is actually part of why Paul was writing this passage. 
He knew there were Christians out there who were saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, I'm answering only to God. I don't have to respect human authority. My authority is God and God alone. And Paul is saying in the first seven of Romans 13, you kind of do have to respect human authority. He says it again in Titus 3.1. Peter chimes in and says the same thing in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. You do have to respect human authority because it comes from God. You do have to submit to government. They're doing God's work, not unthinkingly, not blindly, but right up to the point where the government asks you to disobey God, right up to the point where the government demands that you sin, yeah, you're submitting. Notice our mind's always looking for the, for, the, for the out, looking for the exception, looking for the asterisk. The line is not when the government sins. It's when the government asks us to sin. That's important, but it's also really clear. The government that Peter and Paul were urging their readers to follow, the government of Nero was full of sin, overflowing with sin. Nero was the embodiment of sin. Peter and Paul's response, that's not your problem. Their sin is their problem. The priests, Nero, Nebuchadnezzar, whomever, their sin is their problem. It doesn't become our problem until they ask us to join them in it. That's where we get off the bus. That's really uncomfortable. We want evil government to pay for what they've done. And if we get to be the avenging angel that makes them pay, even better. But what did Paul just get done telling us in chapter 12? Justice is God's problem. He will minister vengeance to individuals and to governments alike. It's not part of our job description. Joseph is prime minister over Egypt. He doesn't try to overthrow Egypt. Even though Pharaoh was a bad guy, following false gods, Joseph doesn't overthrow him, doesn't even defy him. It wasn't until years later when the order came, kill all the Jewish babies, that God's people said, okay, that we got to resist. You can't make me do that. You can tell me to do it, you can't make me. I won't. Mention Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Before we see them in the fiery furnace, what are they doing? They're serving in government under a pagan king who worships pagan gods. They didn't try to tear that government down. They tried to make it work until the government said, you got to do what God says that you can't do. Daniel, same thing. He's serving in an even higher place of government until the government says you can't do what God says you got to do. And even then, and this is, this is important, even then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't try to tear the government down. Daniel didn't try to take Nebuchadnezzar out. They respectfully refused to obey. Peter and John, you can't preach the gospel. Okay, do what you need to do, but we're going to keep preaching. Justin Martyr, you got to bow down. Can't do that. If, if that means you kill me, you kill me. But I'm a Christian. I think how they did it is important. I think it's really important. How we do what we do as believers is always important. If we're resting in God, trusting in God, following God, we should be leaving the fragrance of God, the fragrance of Christ everywhere we go. We should be manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in everything that we do. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, 
kindness, self-control. When we follow God and we speak angrily, when we follow God and we spit scripture at people harshly and bitterly, we mix up the message. I think how they responded is really important. And I think what they, obviously what they did was important too. Daniel, Daniel's friends, the apostles, Paul himself ultimately executed by Nero because he wouldn't stop sharing the gospel. They refused to sin, but they also refused to take vengeance. They didn't try to, to bring about justice against the government that was oppressing them. Because it makes sense. It makes sense in light of what Paul just got done saying. It makes sense in light of the whole counsel of God. We're not here... I love how Pastor Dave expressed this uh, last fall when he did our men's retreat. We're not here to make the world a better place to go to hell from. We're here to help people make it to heaven. Jesus didn't try to reform the world. Not in any political sense. In fact, he was killed because he didn't try to reform the world. That's what they wanted. When he refused, they said, okay, we got no use for you. Go die. Jesus didn't try to reform the world. The disciples didn't organize demonstrations. They didn't protest discrimination. They didn't try to organize the slaves to overthrow the government. All they did, Acts 17, verse 6, all they did was turn the world upside down. Not by changing the world, by changing people. By telling people how they could be changed by God and rescued out of the world. By believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. By recognizing that his blood paid the debt for our sins. And made it possible for us to ask forgiveness and enter in and that's all we have to do to be saved but that still leaves us with a dilemma we talked about what paul said and what he meant but what do we do with it so far you know uncomfortable at places but so far it makes sense and three and a half years ago january of 2020 most bible teaching churches that i know would have gotten to the exact same conclusion a little uncomfortable not particularly controversial let's read the next passage But on this side of 2020, we, we look at it with different eyes, don't we? Now we recognize this is, this is more interesting than it first appeared. Now this is the kind of territory that the rabbis talked about when they said if you ask for three rabbis, you'll get four opinions. Government, submit to government up to the point that they expect you to sin, demand that you sin. Up to that point, submit. On the other side of that, you can't, okay? Submit to government until they ask me to sin. What's sin? You'd think that would be an easy question, and sometimes it is. Sonogram says you're having a boy, but according to the government, you have to have an abortion if you're having a boy for population control. That's sin, and that's always sin. That's never not, that's never not sin. The legislature can pass the bill. The president can sign it into law. The Supreme Court can uphold the law. It's still sin. As Christians, we can't go there ever. But what about when government says you can't have in-person services at church? Or if you do, you can only have X number of people. And if they're there, they have to wear Y type of mask. And they have to sit Z feet apart from one another. They can only be there for Q number of minutes. They can pray and not sing. They can wave, but you can't hug. Is, is that sin? That's the question that, that, that we stumbled into three years ago. And it's a question that I'm sure in some way, shape, or form is going is to reappear. We're going to face it again. When we do, what will we do? Do we submit to government because resisting is a sin? Or do we resist 
because submitting would be sin. It's not always black and white. Now, a couple things worth noting. The first is those aren't our only two options. We're blessed to, to be under a system of government that for the moment allows us to speak into public policy. Speak, write, vote, film, post, protest, file lawsuits, seek injunctions. We can participate in government, and we need to. God is going to hold us responsible for our stewardship of that privilege. We're called to use our freedom to advocate for policies that honor God and love our neighbors, that reflect our convictions. And to not do that, I think, is sin. But here's the thing. In times of crisis, real crisis, perceived crisis, manufactured crisis, things happen kind of quickly. Executive orders are issued, emergency powers are invoked, and that can effectively stifle the voice of the people. What do we do then? If we rewind three years, we know some churches looked at what was happening. The orders were given, the mandates were issued, and they said immediately and unequivocally, we cannot, will not comply. Not now, not ever. It's sin. Their basis was Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. There it is in black and white. Gathering together, worshiping God corporately, that's not optional. That trumps Romans 13, because that's a commandment, and government can't order me to break a commandment. And, well, but you can still worship in your homes? Yeah, we can and we will, and it's different. But you can gather together online. We can, and when there's no other option, that's a great backup, but it's different. By telling us we can't gather to worship, or by putting constraints on when and how and where and how many, no, I'm sorry, government, you've overreached. You're telling me to sin. We're going to say no. That was the position of some churches. Other churches said, hang on. You're saying it's always sin. I hear what you're saying. I think it's Maybe sin and maybe not. Some churches took the position, it's one thing to say church is illegal. We obviously couldn't submit to that. But is it really sin to say, hey, let's hit pause for a short time? Because don't neglect the assembling of ourselves together. What does that mean? Is it sin if we miss a week? Is it sin if we're gone for a month? Or is it maybe ambiguous because God is inviting us to exercise prayerful godly judgment is it maybe like communion some argued paul tells us that jesus said as often as you do this do this in remembrance of me as, as often as you do this how often is that different churches have different customs some celebrate communion weekly others monthly some quarterly there are some that do it annually because they link it to passover but almost all of them would acknowledge that whatever it is that they do is a custom it's not a commandment so the point being, some argued, is pausing or adjusting church services in response to pandemic or other crisis automatically sin? And it's interesting, if you look at church history, the answer throughout church history among the churches has been mixed. I was surprised to learn Richard Baxter, a Puritan, one of Steve's favorites, is on record saying no. He said it's one thing to outlaw church altogether. It's another thing to forbid it for a time because of warfare or pestilence. Now the people over here are saying, how can you possibly get there? You're ignoring black letter scripture. You get there by acknowledging, yeah, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 is a commandment, but there's another commandment in play. 
little thing called love your neighbor. And for a long time, a lot of people were convinced, because we were told that avoiding or modifying big gatherings was a way to love our neighbor. We've since learned that that's less than completely true, but at the time, that seemed like the prevailing wisdom. Now, some people said, well, that, that doesn't matter. We're, this is a, we're supposed to be a free country. Okay, what does that mean? For the Christian, it means that we've got the freedom, that we're, that same freedom we always do. The freedom to do what's good and true and right and best for our neighbor. Whether king or queen or legislature or parliament agrees or not. Well, we don't have a king to submit to. You're talking about kings and queens and legislatures. We don't have a king to submit to. We're a government of the people and by the people and for the people. We are the king, so we can do whatever we want. Isn't that what Simba said in The Lion King? I thought being a king meant you can do whatever you want. Wise old Mufasa says, that is a lot more to being king than that. Form a government doesn't change our obligation. Love our neighbors is always a commandment. In fact, that's the next point that Paul makes. He gets to verse 9, verse 10. He says that we're still called to love our neighbors as ourselves. The love, love still, verse 10, fulfills the law. Form of government doesn't change the commandment. Also doesn't change God's call on our lives to be witnesses of him. 1 Peter 2. Submit yourself. Peter, Peter riffs on the same thing that Paul does. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. He Sounds like Paul, right? For this is the will of God, that by doing good you might put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. What Peter just said in addition to saying everything that Paul already said, is we can't weaponize Acts 5.29 for our own purposes. We can't start shouting, I'm going to serve God, not man, over trivial issues because we don't really like serving man. We can't start shouting, I'm going to serve God, not man, over trivial stuff. We can't start shouting, I'm going to serve God, not man, to advance our political agenda because that wouldn't be serving God and because the world is watching. The world is watching how we respond to government. The world is watching how we view the rule of law. The world is watching whether we respect others' rights or just defend our own rights. The world is watching to see whether we talk about love or whether we love. And you might think I'm getting ready to say, so it's clear all COVID restrictions were reasonable, churches that rebelled against them were out of line, Romans 13, uber alles, no. <laughs> I'm absolutely not saying that. What I'm getting ready to say, okay, here I'll say it, what I'm saying, the world three years ago was messy. The world we live in today, also messy. And churches in our messy world grapple with conflicting instructions. Submit to government. Don't neglect the assembly. Love your neighbor. Be a witness. And, and, and those different calls, those different commandments are in tension with one another. And the balance between them, the way to integrate them, is not always intuitive. It's not always clear-cut. In, in, in some cases, it is. 
In some cases, a state's policies or a county's ordinances were clearly targeting churches. It, not everywhere, but in some places, they just were. It was pretty clear that, that the public health crisis was an excuse from, in some places from the beginning. In some places, it just became an excuse later, long after all of the public health rationale had run out. Well, let's just keep putting our thumb on the, on the churches because we can. Okay, at that point, the math is easy. At that point, the calculus is clear. You've decided that it's your mission to outlaw church. You're not even pretending that's not your agenda. Okay, my mission then is to not let you. My mandate is to not comply. In some places, it was pretty clear-cut. A lot of places, it wasn't. And the pastors that I know in different places were all doing their prayerful best to reason through. What does the word say? What does the word mean? And how does it apply to this messy situation? And different pastors came to different conclusions. Some churches never closed. They just went on without missing a beat. Some closed and then they reopened. Some stayed open but met outside. You, you were there. It was five minutes ago. You remember. Different churches, different places did different things. And I'm not prepared to say any of them were disobedient. Think about Romans 13. It's followed by Romans 14, where Paul says, be really careful about getting all thou shalt and thou shalt not about stuff that's biblically gray. If you glance down 14 verse 1, he says, don't dispute about doubtful stuff. Verse 5, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 10, don't judge, don't show contempt. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not a coincidence, this is the next thing Paul talks about. He even tips his hand that he's going there. Verse 5, he says to the church, be subject to authorities for the sake of conscience. And that's a really interesting choice of word. He's not saying for the sake of law. He's not saying for the sake of the integrity of God's word. He says, no, for conscience. And the thing about conscience is that godly men and women will follow their conscience to different conclusions. How do we respect authorities while not neglecting the assembly, while loving our neighbors, while preserving our witness? Godly men and women will follow their conscience to different conclusions, and that's okay. We need to be comfortable with the possibility, at least, that, that different pastors in different places with different congregations made up of different demographics who, who, who are prioritizing different ministries and wrestling with different needs and confronted by different governments and different degrees of regulation are going to come up with different answers to the question, how do we obey God right now? How do we glorify God in this place right now? What is God uniquely, specifically calling our fellowship to do and be right now? God-honoring, spirit-filled churches came up with different answers, and they're going to again. I said at the beginning, the enemies of liberty and the enemies of our soul studied 2020. And we need to as well, but, but we need to, to pull the right learning from it. And I think the most important learning, the most important lesson we can draw, the answers are almost never cut and dried. Sometimes they are, but the, but the wrong lesson to take from 2020 is, is to walk away saying, well, we're never going to do X and we're always going to do Y. Now, the, the right lesson is that we can't let worship be reduced to formula unless, unless that formula is seek God, wait on God, and when we hear from God, obey God. That's okay. 
I, I fully expect before the decade's out, we're going to have another crisis of some sort, real or imagined. Pandemic, war, meltdown, all three at once. And I will be surprised if we're not asked to restrict our worship. And when it happens, I'm going to be surprised if it isn't more arbitrary, more politically motivated, more thinly veiled attack against the church than it was last time. And if that's the case, we won't hesitate to keep the doors open. Whatever the cost. But we can't know until we get there, because life is messy. Because God's commandments are in tension with one another. And obedience to God can almost never be reduced to simple formula. God is, God is too interested in fellowship with us for that. He's too invested in having us seek him and follow him. First thing Jesus said to his apostles, follow me. Last thing he said before he ascended to heaven, follow me. Does that sound like a God who's interested in plug-and-play religion? So, so the only promise I can offer, the only promise I think any of us should offer is that, is that we're going to seek him and we're going to wait on him. And we're going to sit in the tension and we're going to resist easy answers and we're not going to assume that we can just do what another church is doing, that we can just borrow their answer. No, we need to sit in the tension. Submit to government, be the church, love your neighbor. And when we hear him, because we will, we'll obey. We can decide right now we're going to do that. Because we do need to please God and no man. Lord, prepare us now. Prepare us now to be light in dark times. We say glibly that we occupy until you come. It's a military term. Prepare us now to hold the ground against attacks from without and within. Incline our hearts to you. Tune our ear to hear your voice above the din. Job's friends are always among us, always chirping, always opining. But Lord, you are a father who delights to give good gifts to your children. You delight to lead us and guide us, provide for us and protect us. Lord, we take shelter in you. We're going to go where you tell us to go. We're going to do what you tell us to do. We're going to esteem our lives as, as, as purchased. We're going to recognize that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The worst thing this, this life can do is kill us, and that's not bad. So Lord, in the days that you ordain, use us for your glory. Show us what that means. Show us what that is. Give us eyes to see your ways that we might walk in them.